Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today, we are joined by Laura Spicer, a trainer and master practitioner of NLP, who's become known over the last 30 years for the speed at which she's able to help people create change. She has a particular specialism in all matters to do with oral communication, for example, public speaking, confidence, charisma and fluency, and the Spicer method for helping stammerers and stutterers become more fluent is well known for its efficacy. So really looking forward to chatting with her today about all things change work. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you, Howard. Well, look, it's great to have you here, but hoping we can jump straight in. So uh, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you got started. Well, well, how I got started was kind of by accident. My son was about five years old and he wasn't a very happy boy. He used to beg me every morning not to take him to school because he hated it so much. And it was so exhausting. Every morning, this huge battle with him down begging and crying and hanging on to my leg. And I tried everything I could think of to help him integrate himself and be happier at school. And I'd kind of run out of ideas. One day, I was reading a magazine a glossy magazine, and in it there was an article. And I read the article, and it was so wise and so brilliant. And with this article, there was a photograph of the guy who they were interviewing for this article. And it was incongruent. It looked like those words of amazing wisdom couldn't have come from this rough old rock and roller with a long ponytail, a leather jacket, and the fingernails of one hand painted black and the fingers on the other hand painted white. And it was just one of those moments where it made me stop and go, what's this? I reread the article, thought this might be someone that could help me with my son. So I phoned up to get an appointment with this guy who was Dr. Richard Bandler. And it was so expensive, I couldn't afford it. And I was upset about that. I wanted, I wanted his help, but I couldn't afford his fees. And then I discovered that I could go on a course that he was doing for a tenth of the price that he was charging for a one-to-one -one session. 
So I thought what I'll do is I'll go on the course. I don't care about what the course is, but maybe I could grab him in a lunch break and get a bit of advice. Yeah. And that was my NLP practitioner course. And I've got to tell you that when I first went on the practitioner, I didn't like it or him. Uh, there were three days at the beginning where I was sitting there thinking, what is going on here? He was swearing a lot. He was talking about smashing people's cars. I just thought, I, I, I don't know what this is about. Then on the third day, as I was traveling home on the train, I suddenly realized that something had shifted inside in such a profound and full-on way, and I burst out laughing. And from then on, not only did I love what I was learning and love the man who was teaching it to me, but my whole life changed unrecognizably overnight, and that's how I got started. And by the way, when Excuse me. When I came to the end of that practitioner course, I really wanted to go on the master practitioner, mm -hmm. and uh, but I couldn't afford it. It was it was twice the price of the practitioner, and I wasn't rich at the time. And <clears throat> I decided that if I could earn the money for the master practitioner from doing something that I wouldn't have been able to do before I'd attended the practitioner, I would then book on to the master practitioner. And I thought, I'll give myself a year. It was a thousand pounds in those days. I'll give myself a year. And I'd done it in three weeks. And wow. so in three weeks, I'd made a thousand pounds I couldn't otherwise have made. And I booked straight on to the next master prac and haven't looked back. That's absolutely amazing uh, to hear. So, but what do you think it was that happened between days three and four? Of that experience? I, well, I'm absolutely certain it was deliberate and purposeful on the part of the trainers. And I think that they spent the first few days clearing out the detritus, the old beliefs, the stupid stuff that I had in my head. And I think on day three, they intended me to flip and start building up some good stuff but they were clearing the old stuff first and uh, I didn't know at the time I didn't know what they were doing and you know when they were talking about smashing up cars and breaking things I didn't realize that what was going on inside my head was that I was smashing old beliefs and breaking away from stupid ideas about what life was about so they were being very purposeful but I was very innocent and I think they did their job really well, because by day three, some old stupid beliefs I had about myself and the world had gone. Well, it, it's amazing to remember so vividly what that was like and that kind of transformation. And I know because you've been involved also assisting on some of those courses as your experience within the field went on, that presumably you were able to help other people go through that same process that you went through. It's one of my favorite things to watch is on that practitioner course, what happens to people more than on the master practitioner, more than on any other course. And I hold it in su I hold it with such high value that for both my children's 18th birthday, I thought there isn't a better present I could give them. So I gave both my children a practitioner course for their 18th birthday 
And I think that was the best thing I did for my kids. When, when and how did you begin to get interested in this passion and specialism of yours, which is in oral communication and how language and, or, or the sound can impact people? Well, before I did my practitioner course, I was already a voice trainer. Uh-huh. And I was I already had my own company and I was going into corporate environments and training business people how to make greater impact, how to be more charismatic when they were giving presentations. And in those days, that was a minimum of a two day course. When I went when I learned my NLP, I realized that I could really make that so much slicker because I knew how to install the learnings much faster. And so I cut that course down to a day and I could achieve in a day what I had previously been able to achieve in two. Now I can achieve twice as much that I used to be able to achieve in two days in half a day. So I was already a voice trainer. However, uh, and of course, that's super important. If you're a hypnotist or an NLP practitioner, you need to have the voice that carries the message. It's no good installing things in your clients with the wrong voice. If you say it's really exciting, it's just not going to do the job. So to me, it's one of the most important areas that you can add on to your trainings is to do some voice work, preferably with me, but definitely to do some voice work. And um, anyway, one day I was helping Paul McKenna, who was one of my teachers. I I don't know if you know him. He's a Mm. hypnotist on TV. And I was helping him on a phobia day. And there was one girl there who had a terrible needle phobia. And he got her up on the stage and he showed her a needle at the other side of the room and she freaked out. And then he did a beautiful piece of change work in front of the audience. And then he could have a hypodermic syringe and lie it on her skin and she'd sit there as calm as anything. And when he did that, which was kind of the proof that all the work he'd just put in had worked... He stuck the microphone under her face and said, how does that feel? And nothing came out of her mouth. She couldn't speak. And the few words that she managed to get out were very stuttery. Mm -hmm. And it was lunch break time and Paul looked at the assistants, of which I was one, and he said, could somebody help this girl during the lunch break with her speaking? So I put my hand up because speaking was my game. I'd never worked with a stammerer before, but I took her off in the lunch break for half an hour. And after the lunch break, we came back in. She went on the stage and she spoke perfectly. And I think everybody was a little surprised that somebody who'd been a really bad, had a very bad stammer could go to fluent so fast. Now, at the time, I didn't feel like I'd done anything special. I just thought I'd used my NLP. I'm, I believe very much in watching my clients very carefully, listening to them very carefully so that I can find out what's going on and then help them to do something more useful or mm. more, more efficient. And that's what I'd done. But I didn't realize at that point that 
really there is nobody else who can do that. I don't know whether you'd call it a talent. It might be. But from then on, I started to work. People would send me stammerers. And I got better and better at it. And now I think I'm one of the only people in the world that I would recommend somebody sees if they want to be more fluent. I've explored it. There are very few people that I could recommend. So, so tell me, because there's a couple of things that you've mentioned uh, there that I'd love to, to talk to you more about. One is that you were looking, when you were working with her in the half an hour break, you were kind of looking to find out how she did things so that you could perhaps help her to do things more efficiently. And that is a different distinction, I would argue, than saying, you know, so that I could cure her or I could fix her. Oh, I don't, uh, I don't claim to cure or fix anybody of anything. What I think is that this is about education. This is not a disease. And, you know, if somebody came to me with a physical disease, there may be some ways I could help them. But in terms of behaviors and the way you speak is a habit. Hmm. If you're using the muscles and your equipment wrongly, it will cause it to do something that you don't want. It's like driving a car around on no petrol. It will break down. And I think NLP started from a place of modeling excellence. So, and actually, I think not enough people pay attention to that. When I meet a new person, whoever they are, the first thing I'm interested in is what can they do that's really great that I don't know how to do yet because I want to learn it. And everybody is great at some things. And I think it's really important to keep that a very broad remit. So, for example, one of the things I liked about the man who I am now in a permanent relationship with is he was very good at food and I wasn't. And I know that sounds very fundamental, but I used to forget to eat. I didn't really pay attention to what I was eating and I could be hungry and not notice. Mm. Now, to anybody who is overweight or a good eater, that will sound very bizarre. But to people who are skinny and who aren't good eaters, they'll go, yeah, that's what I'm like. Well, that's what I was like. I had no idea that people who are good at food woke up in the morning and thought, what shall we have for dinner tonight? (laughs) I didn't know that, but a lot of people do that. Me, what I always used to do was wait until I was pretty hungry and then go, what's in the fridge? And then if there was nothing there to tempt me, I'd just get bored and go and do something else. Or I'd pop round the corner to the nearest shop and buy a sandwich. That's not a very good way of looking after your body. And I needed to learn how to do that from somebody who already knew. So I'm always, I always have in mind the fact that everybody's got something that I'd like to learn. And it's my job to find out what that is. When my clients come in, I think I know better how to be fluent than my stammering clients. So what I'm doing in my head is comparing what they are doing and how they are thinking. And I'm comparing that with how a fluent speaker is thinking. For example, fluent speakers are not thinking about what they're going to say ahead of time. It just is, it's it's unconscious. 
So I don't know what's coming out of my mouth until I hear it through my ears. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I surprise myself and sometimes I surprise myself in not a good way and sometimes in a good way. But I haven't thought about the words I'm about to use just ahead of saying them. Many, many stammerers are doing that and they're searching out for the word that might cause a problem and having a feeling about that ahead of time. And it's a vicious circle because if you're scared of a word that you're about to say, you've already got fear and adrenaline in your system, which is unhelpful. So I compare what my stammering clients are doing to what definitely works and creates fluency. And then I teach them. And it's usually pretty simple and straightforward. It's why I can do it quickly. That's uh, so cool that you can fundamentally link the way in which you work in that way to some of the ways in which the whole attitude and ethos of NLP at its core w w was created, that it's essentially about modeling excellence. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people, you know, I, I see people, they come off practitioner courses, uh, perhaps that have been uh, taken by people who were trained by someone who was once trained by someone who was once trained by someone that wasn't involved with it and then you mm -hmm. say what's NLP and they say oh it's uh, you know oh it's a set of tools for change yeah and actually fundamentally that's that's not where it began so I think that that's that's really interesting yeah and by the way uh, Richard Bandler who's one of the co-creators of NLP with John Grinder and Richard Bandler's my teacher and mentor he would say NLP is an attitude that leaves behind it a trail of tools and techniques it's not the tools and techniques. It isn't. It's the attitude that when you have that attitude, you notice things that you wouldn't otherwise have noticed. And you think, well, for example, the way I've just described, that everybody's got something amazing that they do really well. And it's my job to find out what that is and decide whether it would be useful for me to learn it. See, what I love about that as an attitude is... It's quite a it's a very nice and uh, dare I say empowering way to interact with people of which I think there are NLPers out there who could fall guilty of treating people and reducing people to a little bit like machines. Just, oh, they've got that problem. I'll bring out my manual and I'll do page 52 of that that technique on them. I'm sad to say I agree with you. Uh, there are people who are doing that and. There are also what I call NLP bullies who bully people into changing. And maybe that works in some cases, but I prefer to go the route of the highest possible respect mm. for another human being. That's where I'm going to come from. And we all make mistakes. There are things about every single one of us that isn't perfect. <clears throat> and by the way, I think that's a good thing. I don't want to be perfect. That would be boring. And I don't think it's nice to be with perfect. It's not even what I'm aiming for. What I'm aiming for is that every day I'm a little bit better in some way than I was yesterday. Uh, Richard Bandler said, if you compare yourself with somebody else, you'll always find people doing better than you. The chances of you being the best in the world at everything is zero. The chances of you being the best in the world at one thing is small. Good luck. Maybe you will be. Hooray. But if you, instead of comparing yourself with other people, compare yourself with you yesterday, and if you're doing better today, then you know you're going in the right direction. 
And that's what I want for me and my clients. Mm. So when my clients leave me, they may not necessarily be 100% better than they were before. And I don't care. What I care about is that they are headed in the right direction because then it's only a question of time. And I'll make sure that's quick. But when people leave me, the work isn't finished. So, for example, when a stammerer leaves my room and may be fluent, if they don't continue with doing what we've done in the session, they'll fall back into the old habit. So, even though I'm a great believer that change is very rapid, I think it is. It usually happens just in a heartbeat. But in order to consolidate that and make it something that is just automatically how you are from then on, I think that there's a stage which is called practice. Mm. You have to go and practice feeling that, thinking that, or doing that. And it's that practice which makes it permanent. So I check in to my clients two weeks later, a month later, and sometimes five years down the line, I'll just suddenly phone up or email a client and go, how are you doing? Are you still fluent? Are you still happy? Are you still doing the things we worked on in the session? And if anybody said no, I would get them back and give them a free of charge session, probably, depending on why that was. I want my changes to be permanent. And not only that, I want every day for the work that I've done with my clients to help them to do better and better until they far go much further than even I could have imagined before. I want their whole lives to open up. They might come to me for one thing. Say they come to me to get rid of nail biting. When they leave, they won't only not be biting their nails. They'll also be happier, healthier, more focused, more joyous about their lives and more lovely for people to be with. So, you know, this is a big old package that I want for my clients. Wow. It's, uh, I mean, it, sound, it sounds absolutely fantastic. I, I have a question here. And uh, whilst I know you do other work other than uh, stammerers and stutterers, um, I want to stay focused just on there for a few more moments. Because we've talked in the past about, you know, you work on the mindset or shifting the way they think about it very quickly. But as you've just mentioned, that there's some practice, there's some physical stuff that they've got to do to keep fluent and to have the physical changes to support those goals. If you're working with someone over, let's say, a fear or a phobia, they can often get direct and immediate testable results of, hey, guess what? I know it's worked. It's done. You know, I couldn't hold the spider before, for example, and now at the end of the session, I can do that. So how do you frame the work you do so that they kind of stay with it long enough whilst they're practicing so that they can become fluent? Yeah. Well, first of all, I give them practice exercises for the both physiological and psychological, because I think, you know, the old idea that there's your mental state and your physical state and they're unrelated is a very old fashioned idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the medical establishment is still functioning along those lines in some cases. So, you know, it's all disconnected. For example, at the moment, a relation of mine is in hospital. And as much as they try to give people good food in hospital, it's not very well thought through. And when you go to your doctor, 
the questions that are asked are not always going to be broad enough to take everything in. For example, uh, in my own case, I've been to the doctor on a couple of occasions in my life with stomach problems, and I wasn't asked what I was eating. To me, that's a very basic question if somebody has a stomach problem. They want to put a camera down your throat, but they don't think to ask you what you're eating. Now, to me, that's a fundamental mistake. You've got to have a look at the whole picture right at the beginning of what's going on. Now, when I'm working with a stammerer, the first thing I want to know is what are they doing? And because I treat my clients with respect, one of the questions I ask, which I've never heard anyone else ask, and I really don't understand how come, because it seems such an obvious question, I say, where does it feel like it's getting stuck? And that usually takes them by surprise. And they don't really know, because they've never thought about it, because they're not in touch with that section of their physical body as how they're doing this thing. Once they tell me where it gets stuck, I know which muscle group I need to pay attention to. That's the one that's spasming and closing off the air supply, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Once, to answer your question more directly, they will have some exercises, some physical to open up the airways, to help them learn how to breathe, to build up the muscle tone in their lips and jaw. And it works a bit like if you want to grow big arm muscles, big biceps, you go to the gym, you ask the coach to tell you which exercises to do, but knowing which exercises to do isn't enough in itself. You have to do them if you want the muscle to grow. And it doesn't take long. It's very quick. Because especially if you're a good learner, which is something I'm always checking when I'm first with my clients, are they good at learning? That's mm. what I want them to be. So the first thing I set up is I make sure they're going to be in learning mode because this is education. It's not therapy. And once I've got them in good learning mode, I teach them how, what the feeling is that they're going for. And I get them to repeat it a few times. And of course, when the words come out easily, it's a joyous feeling for someone who's suffered not being able to say what they want to say. So they get a really good feeling and they put that together with doing it in a way that is efficient and effective. And then they have an exercise routine, five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening, and then they phone me two weeks later. And then I will either adjust the exercise routine and say, carry on. And it usually takes for an average learner one month to train those muscles once they're trained and the mindset, by the way. Mm -hmm. Once the month has gone past, I send them off and then I probably don't hear from them for six months or a year, at which point I might touch base with them, check it's all happening. Because once you're using your body right and you're thinking right, that's the exercise in itself. You've broken the habit. Like any habit, if you break a bad habit, you need to get used to the new way of doing things. And what I want is for them not to fall back into an old habit, whether it's nail biting, sniffing too much cocaine or stammering. As far as I'm concerned, these are all just bad habits. You need to learn how to look after yourself better, use your body better, use your mind better, more deliberately, 
and get the results you want and then feel fabulous. What I was going to say is, and I may be misquoting it or, or misre- misremembering the source that this has come from, I have a feeling it might be from a book by Dave Elman on hypnotherapy, where he suggests that stutterers or stammerers perhaps have a cause deep down from the past where perhaps they wanted to say something in an event, but for various reasons in the environment, they weren't allowed to or they couldn't. So it's that kind of idea that they they're trying to say but they're not allowed to they're holding something back perhaps they'd had a uh, the loss of a, a parent and they had to be the one that was strong so they couldn't let out that cry um, how far would you agree with that kind of analysis or even is it even relevant do we need to go back and look at causes to, to get rid of and deal with these kind of things well the, the answer to the last bit is no uh, i don't need to know what the cause is in order to see how they are maintaining their current situation because whatever the cause was it's in the past and if they're still doing it it's it still comes back to a habit and I don't need to know what the cause was to help them make a better choice for themselves however it is quite interesting and I sometimes delve a little bit because it might help me to focus in a good direction. And I do hear that sometimes. If people have suffered under an oppressive regime, whether that's a parental regime or a governmental one, whatever, and have held back their voices, that's not good for a voice. And for somebody with a predisposition to stammering could set off a stammer. But it's not the only version. Mm -hmm. I've heard some other things. For example, tell you a good one. I often hear, often, that everything was fine. But in nursery school, there was another little child who they really liked, and who had a stammer. And they copied this little icon of loveliness. Mm -hmm. And then it stuck. How interesting. Yeah, that happens. So uh, I've heard many, many different causes or initial triggers for what then becomes a bad habit. And it doesn't make any difference really to whether or not I can help them. But it's interesting, just like it's quite useful to know the first time somebody experienced their um, phobia. If you know what that first thing was, you can unwind it. So that's something that we do with phobias some of the time we unwind the original trauma that caused the phobia and uh, in phobias there usually is one but I can still cure a phobia without knowing what was you know sometimes clients don't remember Mm. and that's fine It it doesn't make any difference to whether I can help them but it is interesting and it does give me another another way in to what's going to be useful for me to do. Uh, early on, you talked about a demo that you saw where Paul McKenna was on stage doing, working with a needle phobic, doing a beautiful piece of change work. Would you agree with the idea that change work at workshops in front of, you know, doing live demos in front of an audience work quicker and or more effectively than, you know, one-on-one sessions? No, I wouldn't agree that it's better uh, first of all, it depends on the session. <laughs> yeah. And and it depends on the person. 
the demo subject. But a skilled trainer will pick the right demo subject who wants to make this change in front of all these people. And there is a kind of added impetus to, especially if you like your trainer, to get it right. You know, you, you don't want to make a fool of your trainer if you're sitting up on stage with a beloved trainer. Mm. You want to be a good demo subject. So if you pick one of those, I mean, one of Paul McKenna's great skills when he does his live shows is choosing out the right people. Yep. So, you know, it's different. When you're working one-to-one, -one, it doesn't really matter whether it's the right person. But I can tell you, for example, Paul McKenna very kindly sends me clients. And whenever my clients come from Paul McKenna, I'm going to have an easier time of it because they already believe in his ability. That then comes into my consulting room and I don't have to do any belief changes about mm -hmm. what's possible because they've, they're already sold on the fact that I can help them. Somebody that's just come through um, an advert, for example, or they've come across my website when they've searched for me, then there's probably an extra piece of work that I need to do, which is to get them committed to the fact that I am going to be able to help them if they put their trust in me. So the beginning of the session is going to be making sure that they're open to the work that we're about to do and not keeping a bit of themselves nervously back in case I do something that <laughs> isn't in their best interest. That's not going to happen. Everything I do is going to be in their best interest. But I might say to them, if I say anything that doesn't fit for you or that in any way doesn't feel like it's going in absolutely the right direction for you, you can just delete it. Mm. So, and you know, I have a funny example of that. I was once doing a piece of hypnosis with a woman, and for some reason, and I can't remember why, I mentioned pineapples. I think I was using it as an analogy, pulling out the leaves at the top of a pineapple or something like that. Mm -hmm. And when she came out of the trance, she said, I'm really glad you told me I could delete stuff. I'm very allergic to pineapples. Now, I don't know whether that in the state of hypnosis, that very open state, whether my talking about pineapples might have brought on her allergic response. But I'm really glad I said that up front. So she just went inside and went delete. Fine. That wasn't useful. But I didn't know that. Uh, there's no way I could have known. I don't know everything about my clients before they come in. Most of what I say is going to be general enough to be 100% fine. But just in case I get something wrong, I want them to know ahead that they're in charge of what they let in their head and not just from me. Yep. In fact, I want them to be more in charge of filtering what they hear because there's all sorts of stuff in the world. Just read a newspaper. You know, that could be instant fear and depression. Sometimes I say to my clients, if I gave you a plate of dog poo, would you eat it, even if I said you should? And they go, definitely not. And I go, now, come on, imagine it. I could give you this plate of dog shit and tell you it's going to be wonderful. It's going to do you good. Will you eat it? And they go, no, not under any circumstances. And I go, good. Now, stop letting people put dog shit in your head. Because a lot of the problems that come to me 
are because people have put unhelpful beliefs or values or ideas into their heads. And I think we all need to have a little thing inside that filters out that crap. Somebody tells me I'm not capable of doing something or that I'm not good enough or that I shouldn't bother to try and reach for the stars. I'm going to filter that out. It's not helpful to me. And I've spent a lifetime. I'm quite old now. I'm in my 60s. I still discover unhelpful beliefs that were installed by my parents or at school that I hadn't noticed. I'm still noticing them and clearing them as I go. You know, we've all had that. People have told us this is the way life is. You know, don't expect this and don't hope for that. And, you know, it's not safe and all that stuff. And Sometimes that's good advice, sometimes not so much. So I want to clear that from my clients and I want to get rid of those unhelpful beliefs. I think everyone is a star and everyone can excel and everybody has talents and everybody is wonderful somewhere. Let's find that bit and have that being what's driving the show, not the crappy bits. Too right, too right. Absolutely yeah. Brilliant. So have you got any stories or a couple of case studies of people that have come in one way, they've left and they've been transformed in a way that might surprise and delight people out there? Hundreds. I have hundreds of examples and I can give you one or two in a second. But, you know, I'll tell you, here's a funny piece of information about me. Mm. Uh, my husband, who sadly died, but for the 23 years we were married... Uh, he was a therapist, and the partner I'm with now is a therapist. And I, perhaps a little bit differently from some other NLPers, think there is some valuable stuff in therapy. I think that if you can afford the time and the money, that therapy can be incredibly useful and interesting, by the way, in an exploration of who you are and how you feel and what are the things that have happened to you through your life that have affected how you are now. And I also think that dream work can be incredibly enlightening uh, once you know how to listen to it. But I think it's sold wrong. I think therapy is sold wrong. I think people generally go to therapy when they have a problem. And I think that's the wrong place to go with a problem because mm. it's slow and it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. It does a whole other thing. If you said to me, I want to go to that. Well, for example, after my husband died, I went to see a therapist, a traditional therapist, not an NLP, because I didn't want to fix my grief. Mm. But I needed somewhere where I could rant and cry and shout and complain and be angry and horrible. And I didn't want to do that to my friends. Okay, that's not the place I want to be miserable and horrible. I don't want to cause my friends grief. So I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay somebody whose job it is to sit there and hold the space while I scream and cry and go into a horrible state that I wouldn't inflict on people who I'm not paying. But if you say that you're there and I can pay you to be there for me to do that, great. 
So that was a good use for therapy. I wouldn't have gone to an NLP to help me with my grief. I wanted my grief. I wanted to process my 23-year marriage. I wanted to take my time doing it, and I did it for six months. And every time I was dismayed by how little people were able to support me uh, and how people run away, by the way, when you've had a death, because it's scary when people are grieving. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an unpleasant state to be with, and most people are scared of it. So <clears throat> it's quite difficult when you lose a partner, actually. And one of the things that really helped me through was having one place I could go where I could just take off any criteria of worrying about the other person. Mm. Yeah. So in therapy, that was perfect. I also think that if I had the time and money, it would be really interesting and useful for me to go and explore myself in a way that I wouldn't do with a, a behavioral change model. Mm-hmm. I think that problems, what you want is somebody to tell you how to fix them. I think when my clients come, I want to know what do you want? And then I want them to get that. And I want them to get it fast. So if they come to me and say, you know, I'm not confident when I stand up to give a presentation, by the time they leave my room, they will be confident to give a presentation. They don't need therapy and to find out why they're not confident in order to learn how to be confident. And it doesn't need to be deep. This is just you need to think about this differently and then it'll feel completely different and it'll be happy. Yay. Mm. Rock on. That's not a therapy issue. So probably unlike some other NLPs, I I haven't got a big downer on therapy, though having mixed in circles where there are a lot of therapists, I have to admit that a lot of them are pretty fucked up. That's Mm. why they're therapists. And they're still fucked up. And they're still doing, you know, I'm a rehab therapist, but I have a drink problem. Uh, you know, that is going on a lot. Now, in the NLP world, you would look at that and go, for God's sake. I mean, one of the things after my husband died, there was a period of time where I didn't feel that I was really on top of everything. I, I was busy grieving. So I stopped seeing clients because I didn't think that I was somebody that ought to be seeing clients if I wasn't okay. And I wasn't okay, and I didn't want to be okay. I wanted to sort through my feelings. I wanted to be in my feelings. I wanted to feel my grief. And I think it was very important that I did that and gave myself the time to do that. In a good way, by the way. I didn't used to do it all day, every day. Mm. I used to set aside time in the day, a couple of hours, where I would just sit and feel what I was feeling without trying to change my feelings. I needed that. So that was fine. But I didn't see clients while I was doing that. I stopped, Mm. took a break. I think that it's important to walk your talk. For example, if I'm teaching somebody how to be fluent, I need to know how to be fluent. If I'm teaching somebody how to stop being depressed and be happy, I need to know how to do that. This isn't about theories. I don't even like theories. What I like is when something works. That's what I'm looking for, something that works. It's uh, it's really interesting hearing you talk about how you embody that message of essentially walk the talk yeah. uh, and how you incorporate that. 
because a lot of people will say, hey, guess what? You know, it's important to walk the talk. And it, it feels like a platitude that they churn out rather than something that they actually do embody. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. And by the way, quite a few of my clients have been people who have been trained at least to master practitioner level. And they're coming to me with a basic problem. Uh, one of the things that happened to me after my husband died again, sorry to keep bringing that up, but it seems to be a very good example mm. of certain processes, is that somebody said to me, why don't you talk to Richard Bandler? He could probably help you. And actually, I wrote to him at the time and said, I nearly came to see you, Richard, for some help with what I'm feeling. And then I realized I already had all the tools. Hmm. And to me, and, and he sent me a lovely email back saying, I'm very proud of you, Laura, which I've kept. You know, that's it's a big deal for me. He's my mentor and my hero. And for him to say he's proud of me, that meant a lot to me. But I think that when you come out of a master practitioner, you're at the beginning of a wonderful journey, wonderful journey of discovery, just like when you pass your driving test. It's afterwards that you get good at driving. I think when you come out of your master practitioner, you've got all the resources you need. Now you've got to go out there and live it and do it and work on yourself. The first person to work on is yourself. And I am often somewhat surprised by uh, people who come to me who have already got their trainings and who are not noticing what they're saying to themselves and not changing the movies inside their mind so that they can be and do more of what they want to be and do. And then no. they come to me and I just remind them, do you remember when you learned this? And they go, oh, yes. And then they do it and they go, oh, that's better. Uh, and those sessions are often about, do you remember this? And, you know, Richard Bandler said that. Uh, and I just remind them and then they apply it to themselves and it helps them to be where they want to be. But I'm surprised at how many people don't do that. Mm -hmm. They just go into the business of helping other people, but they're still screwy. That's not right to me. I'm a, I'm a blissfully happy person. I still have problems. I have to deal with them. I still have some days when I'm not on top form, but I know how to get back there. And I know how to be deliberate about my internal state. And mostly I am, well, I'm always walking the talk. Doesn't mean I'm perfect yet. I'm not aiming to be. I like working on myself, but I never stop listening to what I'm saying to myself how I'm saying it. I never stop noticing what movies are in my mind and I never forget to keep my eye on the prize. Richard Bandler said a beautiful thing. It's one of the quotes I use a lot, which is happiness isn't the prize you get for running away from pain. Now, that's quite a funny statement for Richard Bandler, for any NLPer, because mm. there's a lot of negatives in there, but they're important because that's what it's about. If you're busy looking behind you and running away from something you don't like, you might smash into something else you don't like. You need to face towards what you do want instead of running away from what you don't. And that's so important. And I'm constantly bringing myself back to that. What do I want? What would be even lovelier? 
How can I optimize this wonderfulness? How can I sort out this less than wonderfulness? I have all the tools. And the first person I work on is me. That's so cool to hear. And I really hope that people take uh, and listen to some of this stuff and go, you know what, let, let's, let's start <laughs> incorporating that. Uh, into our own lives a little more oh yes please tell me laura are there any if, if people are out there and maybe they've done some of the initial trainings um are there any books or things that you could recommend and clearly i think we all have hundreds of uh, book recommendations but a, a few that stand out as being sort of go-to reads that people could read and take away and uh, begin their journey uh, i'm not somebody who particularly learns well from books i learn better from people it's just I like it going in through my auditory channels. That's the way that makes the most sense to me. But I do read the books. I think that it's important to realize that this is a developing field. NLP is not what was going on 30 years ago. And it's, it's morphed through the years and it's got slicker and more elegant over the years. For example, we used to do the six-step reframe quite a lot. I do sometimes use a bit of that, but mostly we don't really use the six-step reframe anymore. It's a bit redundant. It's a little bit slow, a little bit clunky. There are better ways of achieving the same aim. So I wouldn't recommend an old book. I'd recommend the most recent book that Richard Bandler and my colleague Kate Benson have just brought out. It's been available for a month. And Richard says it's the best book he's ever written. And I agree. It's wonderful. It's uh, called Teaching Excellence. Mm -hmm. And it's all about how to teach and how to learn. And to me, being a good learner is the best thing you can be. Because once you're a good learner, you can learn everything and anything. As soon as you set your mind to it, you have the process that works. And I think that book guides you not only to improve your own processes, to, but to be able to be a better therapist, a better consultant, a better teacher, a better mother, because we're all always teaching and learning. So that would be the book I'd recommend. Fantastic. Mm. If people want to get in touch with you or hear more about the work that you do, how can they do that? Well, they can go to my website, which is www. Laura, L-A-U-R-A, hyphen, Spicer, S for Sierra, P for Papa, I-C-E-R, dot com. Laura, hyphen, Spicer, dot com. The other thing that might be good to let your listeners know, if you hmm. do have any listeners who are NLPers, at the moment I've just started something which is, uh, to me, a, just a fantastic use of the most up-to-date technology. I am now with two colleagues. I am running an online practice group. The technology these days allows us to have a cyber meeting space where we can all be seen and heard. It's like being in a training room. It's so great, except you can stay at home and sit in your comfy chair and you don't have to go anywhere and you don't have to find parking and you don't have to spend money on petrol and hotels. You are able to practice with other NLP colleagues. And this is for NLPers rather than hypnotherapists, because we're going to be practicing NLP techniques. It's not training. It's just fun, 
practice. And that's happening once a month. So if you're interested in that, check out my website. And uh, just now, I got a delivery of my DVDs, Voice Power, the seminar, mm -hmm. which is a, a four DVD set with a, a manual that if you prefer to work that way rather than come to see me to work on your voice, I think that's a pretty good DVD set. You'll get a lot of what I do from that watching those DVDs and it will show you the exercises that you can best do to get your voice really tuned up. So I, that's, those are the things I like your listeners to know about. Fantastic. Well, as I said, Laura, we will put all of those, uh, the links to the things that you've just mentioned uh, on the rapidchange.works website as well. So underneath the episode, while they're hearing it, uh, the links are right there as well for them. That's fabulous. Lovely. Well, look, I've really enjoyed uh, chatting to you and hearing uh, and getting a real flavour and insight for not just some of the way strategically that you work with people, but also hearing uh, some of the way you think about things in terms of getting that infectious attitude for just this belief that it's possible. So really appreciate uh, your time today and going through that with us and uh, hope you found it fun as well. Well, I found it fun. I'm really glad to get the word out there. I hope that there's been something in there that each listener will be able to take away, which is food for thought. And I'd be very happy to hear from people what they thought about this podcast or anything else that I do. Love getting feedback. I'm always learning. If there's something that any listener has really liked about what I've said, I'd love to know. And if there's something that anybody disagrees with, I'm always interested. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.